Welcome to the Real Easy Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Leanna Haldorf. In today's episode, I'll be talking to Dan Holloway, Vice President of Sustainable Capital Finance, a firm specializing in financing for commercial and industrial solar projects. We will discuss the pros and cons of owning solar and how to know if it's the right fit for your home. Please welcome to the show, Dan Holloway. more about your experience in the solar industry? Sure. So I started, uh, let's see, about 12, 13 years ago, something like that. Um, I got out of semiconductor sales and uh, wanted to try something new that, you know, was more meaningful. And I felt like solar was a a good place to try that. Uh, I started at the ground up, went from uh, selling residential uh, to starting a commercial team within our company, grew that into a, a pretty substantial group, um, wanted to expand the company. The owner wasn't interested. So I ended up starting my own uh, solar finance company that that finances commercial systems. Um, and I've been doing that for the last eight years. So that's amazing. How did you, wh- why this, I mean, obviously this is a big passion of yours. How did you get into it? Um, I got laid off. <laughs> <laughs> Was that in like, 2005 or what are we talking? 2009. 2009. Okay. Yeah, I started a we we started a an LED lighting company with a buddy of mine, and uh, it was just too early in the process. LEDs really hadn't uh, sufficiently evolved enough to be you know truly viable yet, and so uh, I, I just felt like solar was was a really interesting uh, and growing kind of part of the economy, and I wanted to to learn more about it. So a little bit of a passion, a little bit of a. a need to, but, um, overall it's been fascinating. Yeah. Well, I mean, the reason that I wanted to have you on the podcast is I just feel like there's so many questions and so few answers when it comes to solar, because you can Google it all day long and you'll find different answers and you can really get swindled, uh, by some of these companies. So I wanted to kind of get your take on more on the residential side of the pros and cons of solar kind of, I mean, just even starting out with what would someone expect to pay for putting solar panels on their house, you know, just a regular single family house? So I'd say the first thing you need to do is to really ascertain kind of what your average monthly bill is on just the electrical side, because, uh, you know, you've you've probably got gas worked into that as well. But if you just strip out the electrical piece, if you're paying north of $150 a month, it's probably worth investing some time. As you get below $150, it gets more and more challenging for it to work because to install any size solar system, there's a bunch of setup fees and blah, blah, blah. And so if you amortize that into a small system, it becomes not as impactful or, sure. or more impactful from a, from a cost. Less, less rate of return. Yeah, exactly. But at 150 plus, and you've, I'm sure you've got in your area tons of people that are, you know, running their air conditioning all summer, uh, that are probably really getting uh, whacked pretty good. Yeah. Uh, the other thing you need to understand is that the inflation rate of electricity has been changing a lot recently. So, just in historical terms, uh, the average that we've used, at least in Northern California, has been about four percent a year. So, you know, cost of energy is increasing about four percent for the last 50 years compounded. It's substantial, but recently, because of all of the wildfires and uh, deferred maintenance that the PG&E's and the SMUDs of the world have uh, have not spent money on, they're having to go back through and upgrade their systems, and they're having to spend a ton of money to do it. So you're seeing uh, the cost of energy rising much faster. So you're seeing six percent, eight percent a year, you know, nine percent even. So 
this becomes to me more of like a protection play. I'm not so much looking to save money today. I'm looking to cap the rate of uh, of inflation if, as much as I can, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. Uh, oh, just quick question. So if you have solar, things yeah. like, do you have to worry about things like the rolling blackouts that California has been experiencing? Like all, you know, when they shut power off for fires, like, is this kind of a backup for that as well? Or are you still kind of connected to that grid or how does that work? Great question. So the answer is really no. Uh, And the reason being is that if you can imagine you've got like a 5,000 watt solar system on your house pumping out energy, in the event that the power goes out and you're still connected to the grid, when a person comes out to work on those lines, they're assuming all the power is out. But if your system is cranking away, you could be energizing lines in the area that could potentially kill somebody, right? So what, what the system automatically does and has to, by law, is shut itself off from the grid. Hmm. The minute it shuts itself off from the grid, you can't run your house off that solar energy. So what you can do is get a battery backup and what they call a transfer switch, which sort of isolates you from the grid. And in that situation, now you've got solar cranking into the battery, the battery powering the house, and you're completely disconnected from the grid, and that can work. So that that is a way that that what you just asked can can be accomplished. A little more pricey. You got to pay for batteries. You got to pay for a transfer switch. It's a, a more expensive install, but that does give you some um, uh, resiliency in the event of a of a major power outage. What's something like that run? So you know, batteries depending on how big your house is, what your usage is, and stuff like that. Like a Tesla Powerwall is about nine thousand bucks a battery section. I don't know how they're rated. I think they're about fourteen kilowatts. So you're probably going to need one to two of those uh, for a, a pretty normal size house. And the transfer switch is another fifteen hundred bucks. So it could be as much as twenty grand to give you that resiliency. But you know, if you live in an area where you you get hit with a lot of power outages, that might make sense. And especially if you've got medical issues or young children, older people, you want to make sure that you're protecting the the innocents. Think of the children. Um, Yeah, that was all super, super informational. And I totally cut you off early, but I was just like, wait, I want to know this answer. So we were talking about Uh, price of system. So a typical system on the resi side is going to run four kilowatts to, let's say, six kilowatts, somewhere in that range. If you have a really big uh, house or you've got a, a health, a very healthy uh, power bill, let's say you've got, I've seen people $700, $800 a month for the entire year, uh, you know, you're going to have to obviously go much bigger than that. But let's assume for, let's say a 5,000 watt system, uh, $250 a watt, you're probably talking about $12,000 to $20,000, depending on a whole bunch of different variables. That gives you an idea of a cash purchase. Uh, a lot of these uh, companies are offering finance right now, and that finance is going to put you into typically a 20-year deal. Uh, and that 20 years uh, it allows you to sort of pay the system off over time and yet still get a discount on your current rate of electricity. And w- the important thing to me is to cap that rate of inflation, right? So you might have a, a 2% escalator on your bill versus a 4 to 8% inflation rate of electricity. So you can really start controlling your energy costs earlier and for a consistent amount of time if you can step into one of these now, let's say. So, when, and I've seen this go terribly wrong where someone finances it. Um, I was actually on the buyer side. The seller thought he could transfer the lease of the solar contract to the buyer. Turns out, no, he had to pay like $40,000 to get out of it. 
to yeah. buy it out because it was non-transferable. Um, and that's also something we deal with is even if liens, they are transferable, you still have to qualify credit-wise. So if you're at the very top of your purchase price and then they're solar and you can't qualify for the solar, you actually can't qualify for the house. Everything you said is all the things you want to look for in the fine print. So Okay, that's what I was going to say. So what what other things in the fine print should people be very wary of when getting themselves into a 20-year contract? I mean, that's basically raising a kid into mid-college, you know? <laughs> yeah, so, you know, the average, if my understanding is correct, the average uh, length of stay in a particular house in California is about five years. Yeah. So you have to see, yeah. if you're stepping into a 20-year deal, you're going to have to transfer it. And so that becomes your number one thing you care about. Is, is the contract assignable? And what are the conditions for the person that would be purchasing the house? And can they qualify for it? Is that a relatively easy thing for them to qualify for? Or is it possible? If it's one of those things where, oh, they need a minimum credit score of like 650 and they're buying uh, an $800,000 house, just to qualify for the house, they're probably going to have to meet that 650. You know what I mean? You, so you've got sure. a sense of, okay, this is doable. If it's much more egregious than that. Okay, you have to have a credit score of 770 or something like that. Mm -hmm. You know, that's going to wipe out a huge chunk of the population. In that sense, that's where you start getting a little concerned. Or if it just is flat out, it is not transferable. You need to buy this out in the event of a sale. So those those are the two biggies that I would worry about. Um, other than that, I would look for warranties. So mm -hmm. uh, there's going to be warranties on the panels. They're typically going to be 25 years. There's going to be a warranty on the inverter, which is the thing that converts DC energy off the roof into AC energy into your house. Uh, that inverter itself will typically have a 10 to a 12-year warranty. Uh, and so you kind of need to know what that warranty is and understand that, you know, after 12, 15 years, that thing's probably going to die. And it's not going to die in the way you think. The computer panel is going, the little computer inside of it is going to die. The rest of the guts of it are going to be fine. So you're just going to have to replace that little circuit board. It's not as bad as it sounds, but it will fail at some point. So just knowing, having some comfort level that, you know, they're on the case. And, and a lot of people will offer a bumper to bumper 10-year warranty, which would give me a lot of comfort because after 10 years, I'm pretty sure it's going to keep working, except for the murder. Okay. Yeah. Because that actually was my next question is what's the average lifespan and what's the maintenance look like? Because especially if you're in a lease, obviously it they still technically own it and you're paying for it. So, and you, you basically went over. Yeah. So technically if they own it, they're also responsible for what we call O&M operations, operations and maintenance of the system. And so while you might want to clean it periodically, just, you know, spray it off of the hose just to keep the efficiency up. Uh, if anything goes wrong with it, if you're into a lease program, that O&M is on them. So that's one good thing about it. If you purchase it for cash, which is what a lot of people do, your payback periods are going to range from four to seven years, typically. And that means once you pay the system off, that system's probably once that inverter gets replaced in year 12, let's say, for at least 25 years. I'm going to say panels today are lasting 30 to 35 years. Panels are going to last as long as a brand new roof. And which you're going to have to take them off anyway to redo it, too. So if you're doing a roof, should you do a panel at that point? I think it's a fantastic idea because they're going to coincide with kind of their life. What's interesting about roofs is that roofs uh, only fail really because sunlight, uh, sunlight sort of wears out a roof. We got a lot of that in Sacramento. <laughs> <laughs> so the minute you cover it, you're protecting that portion of the roof uh, that those roofs tend to last longer. The surrounding roof will not. But that is really interesting because, you know, you think of, oh, it's got more weight on it or or it's no. No, it actually protects it more. That's super interesting. Huh. Um, what do you think of those new Tesla solar roofs? 
I honestly, I haven't seen them. Is that the integrated solar panel ones? Yeah, because, you know, some people are like, oh, solar panels are such an eyesore. Uh, they tend to be less efficient. So half as efficient, twice as much. That used <laughs> to be the case. I don't know if that's true anymore, but that's a 4X difference. So <laughs> just look into the math and see if it makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And they're, I mean, they're better looking. And yet at the end of the day, they still look like solar panels. So yeah. the question is, some people look at solar as like a badge of honor, right? You know, I'm doing my part. And so a lot of people used to say, put the solar on the back of the house. I don't want anybody to see it. Now they're kind of like, I'd like people to notice it because, you know, kind of gives me a little kudo, right? <laughs> I'm a better person than you. <laughs> and um, so pretty much if you're going to buy something outright, if it takes four to seven years to actually like recoup what you're investing into it, you shouldn't be buying one if you're planning on selling in the next two years or something like that. Now, they have done studies that houses, and you would know this better than I would, houses with solar get appraised at, a, at higher values. Is that a true statement? So it's true, but it's not usually dollar to dollar for dollar. So they, I've seen, I we looked at one, it got, uh, it was like $8,000 higher than what it would have appraised for without solar. But I will guarantee you that solar was not $8,000 to put on a house. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So usually what they do is an appraiser, I think, will say, okay, if you're saving, let's say, you know, $1,000 a year and there's 10 years of useful life in it, they will sort of take that number, put it in today's dollars and say it's worth this. That's typically how an appraiser will evaluate a solar system, not based on cost. Mm. Uh, but like like I said, if it's three years into the contract and you sell the house, you should have a lot of useful life left in that thing. And it should have... You know, if it's throwing off any savings every year, which should be throwing off a massive amount, uh, it should be appraised higher than that would be my my logical, you know, thought progression. But I'm not sure that's true. Yeah. And it's it's appraiser by appraiser as well. So um, sure. so one of the things I really want to talk about that is very timely is you uh, we were discussing when I first called you to ask you to do the interview, the new rules that are coming into effect. Was it NIM? So NEM stands for net energy metering, and it's the way by which, so you have to understand a solar system doesn't produce consistently throughout the year because there's more sunlight in the summer and less sunlight in the winter. To give you an idea of how dramatic that is, in the summertime, you're typically getting about three times the output as you're getting in the wintertime. That's a dramatic swing in production. And so when you design a solar system and you don't want to uh, you know, create more power than you actually need, you sort of pick some, pick some middling number, like what we call the shoulder months. That would be like April and October. And the idea being that that's really what you want to design to is that that amount of production. And then the summer months, when you overproduce, all that extra energy that you're not using in your house gets sent back to the grid. And the utility will give you credit for that. And the utility will say what, what NEM 2.0 is where we are today, the current rules. They'll give you something about you know, retail rate. So let's say that's in California, that number is about 30 cents a kilowatt hour. It's pretty high, actually. So every kilowatt hour you send back to the grid in the summertime, you're getting, you know, 30 cents, 30 cents, 30 cents. It's great. And the reason that's so impactful is in the wintertime, the system's producing much, much less. You're actually pulling more power from the grid. You're burning through those credits you develop in the summertime. So the value of those credits is very impactful to you, understanding what those are. NEM 3.0, which just got passed literally a month ago, it's going to get enacted as soon as April 13th, I believe, of this year. It'll basically say that we're going to change you from retail rates in terms of credit value to uh, wholesale rates. It's going to go from like 30 cents down to eight. 
So every kilowatt hour you send back to the grid now, you're only getting eight cents. So that is a huge, huge factor. And what it means is that you don't want to export any energy into the grid because you're not getting much credit for it. Does that make sense? It makes total sense, but it seems like a step back in wanting to move towards renewable energy. It absolutely is. And the reason it's happening right now is that, you know, California, for all their bluster about trying to create a much more green state and get well, us we're to- so for, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So ahead of the ahead of the curve and and, and we are crunchy. Uh-huh. In terms of countries, we're number two in the world behind Germany. <laughs> so in terms of how much money has been invested, it, it's it's a staggering amount of money. But putting that aside, the problem that they're having right now is that uh, the utilities like PG&E are, you know, they're on their, I don't say their deathbed, but they're struggling right now pretty bad. You know, the the fire in, in San Bruno, the Paradise Fire, all those, they're on the hook for those. And that's billions upon billions of dollars. And the the issue that the state is having is if if they go fully bankrupt and nobody will bail them out, eventually the state will have to overtake them. And the state does not want to be in the power business. Absolutely not, because there's just more and more lawsuits potentially coming. So they're kind of like caught between a rock and a hard place. They want to go green, and yet at the same time, they don't want to be a power company. And so through all of that, they're going to allow the power companies to get away with some stuff right now that they haven't been able to in the past. Just for sheer, you know, we don't want to own you. And so that's why this is rule is probably getting passed now is my take on it. I'm, I'm not speaking gospel here. This is just my opinion, but that's kind of the way I look at it. Do you think that they'll have another update? Like, I mean, is this something that happens every few years? Is this something that happens every decade? What are we thinking? So, NEM 1.0 lasted uh, probably about 10 or 12 years. Okay. That was through the infancy of solar. And at the, at the time, it was great because we needed so much power in the middle of the day because that's when everybody runs their air conditioning in the summertime. Okay. Then we got so much solar, it was like over in, or it was inundating the system. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. So, so much solar got added to the system. We had more electricity than we could use. And now we're actually shipping it out of state. We're shipping it to Oregon and Washington. We have these major trunk lines that go up and down the coast. And so it's so bad now that you it's like a problem to get rid of that energy. And so now this is their kind of response to that. NEM 2.0 came out, like, like I said, about 10 or 12 years later. NEM 3.0 only took like four or five years, something like that. And so could we see another one? I don't know. I think this is going to probably really help the utilities in a lot of different ways. So I don't foresee a major change from here, but it could happen. So you were saying the state really doesn't want to get into the of uh, the uh, the energy business. Would they consider? I mean, I think it would be so cool if they put someone else put solar panels on people's houses, and it's kind of just like it's just like running a gas line to your house or running, you know, the power lines to your house where the they take care of it, they maintain it, they do all this stuff, but it's renewable, you know, renewable energy. Is that even like is that just a pipe dream, or am I crazy? I think they're going to let the private market do that as much as possible. They don't want to be in that business either. <laughs> I mean, it, it's it's a problem of, of competition, right? You've got all these private companies already doing that. And does the state want to step in and become a, a third competitor to that? Yeah, I'm just kind of throwing ideas around because I know they're also talking about, uh, I can't remember what year, but supposedly you're not going to be able to buy gas using vehicles by a certain time. So obviously electric vehicles are going to go up. And I think about the the population that is living in poverty, that is already taking buses, that's already doing a lot of the public transportation. If 
we're all moving towards ele- electricity and the electricity prices go up, those people are going to be affected without any of the benefit. I think that's that's a very fair statement. Um, and I don't know that there is a simple answer to that question. You know, you've got a lot of people that live in multifamily housing, they live in trailer living. There, there's a lot of things that people do and they cannot take advantage of solar because they don't own their roofs. You know, ultimately they don't have the rights to even put solar on their property. And so there's no way they can take advantage of that process. What they've done in other states to get around this is called community solar. And this is where I go build a giant, you know, five megawatt system somewhere that is, where land is relatively cheap. I pump that energy into the grid and then people are allowed to buy kind of virtually that energy as it comes off the grid at rates approaching what the cost of making that power would be. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're not, yeah. They're not connected to that system, but sort of through the grid, they are. That system has done really well in places like Massachusetts and Colorado and, and some other states. And some version of that may happen. And, and that's what I think is the most likely solution to the question you're posing, which is how do you allow everybody to participate in this economy and and get the savings from it and do something good for the world. Yeah, because I mean, it's it really does seem like it's shining a light on the economic differences. If we're really moving towards solar, people are getting left behind that can't finance it, don't own the property that they live on, can't buy an electric vehicle because they're still priced out of it. So it's like, I feel like it's just separating people more and more from the haves and the have nots. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think that's right. Yeah, I just, you know, I worry that lawmakers aren't considering those things when they're implementing all these new solar laws. Yeah, and I think the idea of going to a fully electric system um, is, in my mind, a bit questionable because we've got an unstable grid as it is. Adding the entire fleet of, you know, cars to, to that unstable grid seems like a recipe for problems down the road. On top of that, they want to, at least in California, they want to banish natural gas uh, to homes, which is, you know, further exacerbating the problem in my mind. So while I can see the upside of all of it, I just think the timing of it is going to be problematic. I just don't think the grid can support it in its current iteration. Where do you see solar in 50 years? I think there's some new technologies on the horizons that are going to modify the way solar happens. So for instance, um, I was at a trade show last week and then we were talking about putting solar inside glass. So now you're putting it in windows and you're still getting a good amount of what they call trans transmissivity. You can get light through the window at a very high rate and still have that glass be producing solar energy. So I think things like that, uh, things like you're talking about with Tesla roofs, you will see it get more and more integrated into the structures themselves, and they will get built into the structures from the get-go. And by doing all of those things, eventually the homes will become self-sufficient. You won't need, you know, and they'll be cost-effective enough to where you'll be able to overproduce and it'll be fine. So that that's one piece of it. The other piece is that we need storage. We need more batteries and we need batteries to get cheaper. We need technology to get better. You know, ultimately, if everybody had their own storage, ultimately, we could all last for, you know, a week off grid, we wouldn't have to be necessarily connected to the grid if we didn't want to be. And I think you'll see more of that uh, down the road as well. I don't think it'll be everybody, it'll be some small percentage of the the population wants to go off grid, but it'll be an option for people. And it'll create a much more resilient platform where people can exist off the grid for a period of time when, when uh, catastrophic things occur. Yeah. And we all want to just bombshell bunker down and eat our beans out of a can and 
you know, just live <laughs> off the land and Beans out of a can. make our own, make our own clothes and all that. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, no more big brother. No, we love our, we love our Google and Amazon overlords. Anything else that you want to bring up that we haven't talked about that you think is important for kind of the, the masses to know or to take note of? Um, the one thing I will say is that when you think about battery storage, uh, and a lot of people ask that question or were asking that question when I left, just do your research because I think what you'll find is that a lot of these battery storage systems, a la Tesla, they only last for like a limited amount of time when you look at the total usage of your house versus how much storage capacity they have. And you got to think of like, what's the most likely time that I'm going to lose my power? And it's typically in either a fire season or it's going to be in a winter, you know, stormy season. In the fire season, okay, you've got sunlight every day, but it's going to be blocked by a lot of the smoke in the area and things like that. So the idea of that system operating at maximum efficiency and being able to recharge that battery, you know, every day to keep you going in the event of a major outage for a long time gets less and less, especially in a winter situation. We've already got very little sunlight in in, in uh, the winter time. And then on top of that, you know, you've got rain and wind and clouds and stuff like that. So the idea that that thing is going to run you for a week off grid might be really suspect. And it's very expensive for what it is. And you got to think, how often am I going to actually get my value out of it? So if you're only running that thing one, once every three, four years, and you're only running it for four hours at a time, that's a lot of money to spend. So I would just be really cognizant of all those variables when you think about, do I want to add storage? There might be much cheaper op- options. You might look at getting just a, generator. Gas, just a gas generator, l- less than two grand. I mean, we have one for our, our house and I have solar. So do you have an idea what the decision we made? That was the direction we went. So that's really interesting. Yeah. Things to think about. Yeah. I always like to know what do the pros do on their own houses? So that's a, <laughs> that's a very, very interesting thing. And it, it's great. We've run it twice. Uh, it's loud as heck. I'll yeah. tell you what. The you know the ones you buy off of uh, Amazon are going to be very loud. But that being said, less than two grand, and I can run my whole house. And I only run it once every two three years. Yeah, yeah. Four hours. It's not a bad deal. We just go eighteen sensor and put some candles on and get off our iPads. So two <laughs> beans. Yep. Yep. Beans and clothing. Yeah. Exactly. Anyway, well, Dan, thank you so, so much for all this amazing information. I think it was really helpful. I think my, I think my listeners will think it's very helpful and I really appreciate you stopping by and chatting with me. Well, it was great catching up. (laughs) All right. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Easy Real Estate Podcast. In our next episode, I'll be talking to Kristen Lurch and Heather Darborough of Chicago Title about the escrow process, specifically what the heck is escrow? Have questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes? Go to realeasyrealestatepodcast.com. You'll also find links there to all the past episodes, guests, and their information. See you next time. I got the day off, so. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, that's nice. Well, how totally that, good. What's that like? I haven't had that in like seven years. <laughs> Yay.